Today, we are wrapping up the final message in our series through Ephesians. This is just one of the four books in what's known as the prison epistles. So we're we're going through a whole series that should end in April if everything works out the way we've got it planned. And today we end Ephesians. Next week we pick up with the next book. So we've been through quite a journey. You'll see the messages come up behind me and you'll see the one today, Ephesians 6:21 to the end of the chapter, keeping it real. So I want to back up and give you a little bit of last week's text because it kind of introduces today's. As we learned about putting on the whole armor of God, we were instructed at the very end with these words from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 and following. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And to me, it's kind of fascinating that Paul gets toward the end of this letter as he's driven home the points that he's given us. He makes it a little personal. He says, pray, he keeps saying, pray, 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 different kinds of ways right here. And pray for me that I may speak boldly the way I'm supposed to. Paul, the one who's in prison for speaking boldly, is asking for prayer to give, that God would give him what it takes that he would speak boldly, which we already know he does. But he doesn't see himself the way we see him. And what a humble spirit to ask for that. Then he launches into today's text that we're going through, verse 21, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. What do we know about Tychicus? Not a lot. What we know about him is that he obviously was an extremely respected individual in New Testament times. He's only mentioned five times in the New Testament. He's known to have gone with Paul on one, at least one of his missionary journeys. We also know that he was with Paul in this Roman imprisonment. We also know that Paul intended to leave him with the church on the island of Crete. If you'll remember, Timothy and Titus were left in their respective locations. In Ephesus for Timothy, he was the evangelist left in charge to make sure that the church did what it's supposed to do. Leadership is all doing what they're supposed to do. Same thing for Titus. He's a young, also young evangelist left in Crete to make sure the same thing, that he leads that. But Paul is wanting Titus to join him, so he wants to send Tychicus to take over the operations of that church. However, that's mostly what we know about Tychicus. We don't know much more. He's one of these guys that's extremely respected, but we just don't know a whole lot about him. It's kind of like some of the people that you might know that you've seen in the churches in your history. I've told you before, I usually bring it up on 
Father's Day, uh, I, I talk about as a little boy who was rarely brought to church, who sat next to his mother, and, and my mother, I remember telling us boys when she saw men go up to serve communion, and we do it differently right now because of COVID stuff, uh, but, and, and each church does it differently, but in this particular church, men, but I didn't know their names, would walk up at time of communion, and they would serve communion, take it to people in their seats and trays. But my mother made it a point to point out to me, this little boy who wanted to be Spider-Man or whatever superhero of the day, I think it was probably more like the $6 million man. But anyway, that's what I, I thought those were men. But my mother planted a seed in my head she would make it a point to say, that is a man of God. She would point at these men who were serving communion. I don't think she knew a whole lot about them either. Just that they were there when we showed up on those rare Sundays. They were there and they were, they were serving communion. I don't know if you realize this, but people that you see or your children see in church on a regular basis, that's how they identify. That's what a Christian is because they're always there. Even if you're a background person, person. Maybe you do things that you don't even want to talk about. Clean the bathrooms. <laughs> Background person. But people still look at you because you're always there. That's what a Christian is. That's a godly woman. That's a godly man. Whatever it is. And it's a cool thing for me. I, I feel so honored that I got to make my heroes men who were always in church. That, that stuck. Be careful because the children are watching you. So are other people. If you're here on a regular basis, you represent Christianity. Antichicus is one of those people who did it well, quietly, behind the scenes, but whole congregations respected that man. So much so that Paul could say, I'm going to have him go to Crete and take charge make sure the church is doing things right. A background guy. Somebody, he didn't write a book in the Bible. He's not listed among the, the first deacons. He's not listed among elders. He's not listed among apostles. He's a background guy. Somebody that's just serving to the best of his ability. And here he appears in inspired scripture. And Paul comforts the people, just so you know that I'm okay I'm going to send tickets because he'll tell you everything. He'll, he'll give you, get you up to speed what's going on. In the next verse, verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I mean, after all, it is a little discouraging if you think about it. This person, Paul, represents a very successful traveling apostle that everybody knows about. He once persecuted the Christians. Now he generates a lot of Christians. He's willing to go to prison or even die for his faith. Everybody respects Paul and he's in prison now. How discouraging is that? Our fearless leader is in prison. So he's inspired by God to send this letter. And in this letter, he, he makes it very personal. I don't want you to be discouraged. 
That's why I'm sending Tychicus. He's going to encourage you. He's going to tell you the prison ministry that I'm involved with here. I mean, I hope you have this vision of Paul that I've given you before. Most of us, when bad things happen to us, it's not our fault. And by the way, working in a prison environment, I must tell you, almost every single person who's incarcerated thinks it's everybody else's fault. And that's why most of them will keep coming back because they don't own their problems. However, a lot of times things happen to us that aren't our fault. And when that happens, we, we seem to coddle it. We hold it close. We get bitter about it. We get angry about it. It's not fair. Those kinds of things come into our mind. But Paul, who's in prison for no good reason, imagine him shackled to a prison guard while he has to do whatever he has to do. And that, you would hate that. But Paul... What did he do? Like, I have a captive audience right here. You want, let me tell you about Jesus. You can't go anywhere, so you have to listen. That's Paul. And Paul is going to spread that encouragement through someone else. He's going to send Tychicus. Notice the purpose. He clearly says that he's doing this on purpose. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think sometimes I could do things with more purpose. I could just not let incidental things happen where God does ministry because I happen to be at this place at this time. Paul was doing this on purpose. I'm sending Tychicus, so when he's there, he's going to tell you what's going on, and that's going to encourage you. I can do better at that. I can plan a little better. I can try to be in the right place at the right time, try to send somebody at the right place in the right time, try to help be an instrument for God purposefully like Paul was doing. He's sending one of his helpers who's there with him to take care of him, help him with his ministry as he is incarcerated. He's sending him to encourage other people. I'm sure he could have used the help. I think I could do better in being more purposeful. Let's move on to verse 23 and some conflict, some controversy. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The controversy comes in the little note you see up behind me, and in your Bibles, you probably have a note as well. So as I'm reading from the English Standard Version, my preference typically to preach or teach from, I want to read to you from the New International Version. Peace to the brothers and sisters. There's a note. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to read to you from the King James. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the notes that are on those first translations, they explain to us that the word, in some way or another, it'll explain to you that the Greek word is the word that we use to get the name of the city, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's the word for brothers, that's the word, literally speaking. And in the English Standard Version, in the note, it says, or brothers and sisters. But the Greek doesn't say that. Why did they do that? Why did the translators think it necessary to do that? And then in the NIV, it says it's referring to the Christians, which would include brothers and sisters. That's why they translate it that way. So they explain at least why they did it. 
And this brings up within us some strong opinions. So because of that, and I noticed that I don't have any more of my charts out there, I'll make some more and put them out. If you would like a chart, I'll get it to you via email. Just give me your email. So we'll look at this chart. This comes originally from, um, can you, you probably can't read that at all from where you are, can you? All right, so I'll use my little laser pointer. These are the original manuscripts. These are parts of the Bible that were written. By the way, uh, we only have, we don't have any single fragment of any original, but just as a starting point, there were originals. So original manuscripts from Old and New Testament, and then we have the, these are descriptions of what we do have, what we have discovered, which are not, these are copies, these are not originals. But there were originals. I mean, Paul did originally write this. There was an original. We don't have copies of any originals because when they would make copies, you know, they go over to the photocopier and, no, they, it's not what they did. You know, they, they meticulously had scribes who would make sure they did not miss a mark. But sometimes, in some scrolls, they would get damaged, or sometimes somebody would miss a mark. And when that would happen, they would destroy that. Or if they discovered in one of the other copies, they would destroy that. But when they would make copies, and they knew that it was just right, a whole bunch of people would check it out, make sure it's just right, everything is precise, then they would destroy the original, because their opinion was that this is Scripture, and we must respect it. One of the things that, one of the worst fates that could befall scrolls, Scripture, was to give it to a child. There's nothing disrespectful, disrespectful about children, but if you, I have, this is not it, I have a Bible that was uh, given to me um, as a kind gesture from the church where I was serving, and the sale price was $299, I think, on it. It's made of genuine calf skin. They had to kill a baby cow to make my Bible. And it sounds like each tree for each pay. I don't know. It was just real expensive. And that Bible, I am not going to hand to a small child. Even one of my small children, I didn't have that Bible then, but I wouldn't have handed that Bible to them because it's going to get mishandled because it's a child. They don't have the coordination and, and, and if you remember what it was like to have pews, and there were hymns and Bibles there, if you let a child just run loose and free, they're going to pick the hymns up, they're going to pick the Bibles up, and they're going to drop them. It's a child. I'm not a child, and I've got a good chance of dropping things too, so I'm just saying. But that was the worst fate that could befall scrolls of Scripture. And other times they would burn them and things like that. We could... Talk more about that, but I've got a point to get to. So, and we've got the, there's uh, ancient versions. We've got the Latin Vulgate here. Here's the Masoretic text. That's the Hebrew uh, dating from uh, 135 uh, to 1200. Then we go, basically, this is the Dead Sea Scrolls. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls really changed a lot of things we understood. But I want, to, I want you to watch this. The very first English translation is John Wycliffe's, which some say 1380, but really he wasn't complete with the whole Bible until uh, 1382. This chart says 1380 because he he, part of it was complete. Tyndale was in 1525. Miles Coverdale was in 1535. Matthews was in 
1537, the Great Bible was in 1539, the Geneva was in 1560, the Bishops was in 1568, over here is the Douay that uh, was completed in 1610, and then we have the King James right here in 1611. And I don't know if you were counting, but that is a, I believe that is eight translations, English translations, by the time we get to the King James. There are a lot of people that think the King James, that's it, that's the authorized version, that's the first translation in English of the Bible. Wrong. And we've had a lesson in here, a powerful one, as we were going through Ephesians, where I showed you precisely how we can't do that. We can't, we can't say one translation is perfect, because they're all done by humans. I would use more than one if I were you. And here we have the newer translations all up here. The reason why I wanted to point this out to you is because people would point to this, things like this text today, and they would say, okay, see there? There you go. King James says, brethren. That's more accurate because it's brothers. Hold on. Brethren, I don't know if you know this, but the King James, if, if I were to ask you a trivial question, there's only one other book that was written that sounds like King James, and that's the Book of Mormon because he liked the King James. But as far as uh, people who actually spoke in King James lingo, the King James was purposely written to have a spiritual sound. It wasn't, it wasn't that everybody talked like that. There's other old and ancient English literature out there, but none of it is like the King James. The King James is very unique, and it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. It sounds spiritual. It sounds so spiritual that for many years, people in churches would pray in the King James lingo. They wouldn't talk in it, but they would pray in it. In their prayers, there would be lots of these and thous and all of that. And the word brethren definitely has a spiritual tone to it. The more accurate translation is brothers, but it is talking about those of us who are of the faith. So the implication is, it's in, it means all of us. In the gender language, or in the Greek language, just like many other languages, when we're talking about people and we're not being specific about a particular person whose gender we know, we use the masculine gender. So it's different than the way we speak. We, we divide it up a whole lot more. But if it's talking about a group of people and you want to keep it gender neutral, you don't speak in the neutral. You don't use the neutral language because that's not referring to people. If you're talking about people, you have to make it masculine if it's going to include both. It's the rules in, in, in Koine Greek. That's the way it has to be written. So it is talking to the brothers and sisters in Christ, but literally translated, it says brothers. Here's those three translations again. Of the three, the top one would be the most literal with the original Greek. But the bottom one might actually capture what's intended. Let me tell you again, I think the King James is a good translation. Here's evidence right there. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Now, I want to take you to a chart because I mentioned grace. 
And if you ever get online to the messages in this series, you can also on the iTunes and also, I'm not iTunes, on Apple Podcasts and also Spotify and whatever the venues are, you can get look at one that's called His Grace is Big Enough. And it, if you want to understand God's grace, that's probably the one. But I wanted to show you what we've already gone over. You, everybody who was here when we did this, we talked about grace and faith respectively when we were in Ephesians chapter 2. We talked about this whole chart. And understand essentially that faith is the access to grace. Ephesians 2, 8. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Now we're talking about saving grace. There's other kinds of grace. There's the kind of grace that, oh, I made a big mistake. But for the grace of God, I didn't have to pay for it and other people didn't have to suffer for it. Does that make sense? It's not saving grace, but it's a thing that happens on a regular basis where God gives us his grace where we don't deserve it. So this is the plan of salvation, is what we have up here according to Scripture. If you want to talk about it in further details, we can. But understand that this is your demonstration of your faith, which is your access to your grace. By grace we have been saved through faith. James is the one who clarifies that you cannot say you have faith unless you prove it by how you live. That's what we're talking about. Faith is demonstrated. It is your illustrated faith that gives you access to saving grace. But when it comes to a, a daily thing where God just gives us His grace, it, if we go back to that verse, let's look at that verse again. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So those of us who love our Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with you. That's the way it tends to work. If you are close to Jesus, quite often, you will find His grace. doesn't always work like that because His grace happens to people who don't even know who He is. John chapter 5, remember the guy that was healed at the pool? Yeah, he didn't even know who Jesus was, but he was given grace. But your chances are a whole lot better if you stay close to Jesus. And so Paul, in his closing, says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, have you heard of the love chapter? Well, let's talk about the love chapter. <laughs> so when I do premarital counseling before... I do marriages. Now, by the time I had been doing weddings for 20 years, I had done over 100 of them. And at the end of that, I had some, I was talking to different preachers and I was disturbed at some of the things I was hearing. So as I thought I was pretty sure, I went back and checked my files and sure enough, doing over 100 weddings over 20 years, not one couple had been divorced. And then one did in that 20th year and another, two. And it really bothered me immensely. So I went back into the files to see what did I not catch? What did I, is it something I did? And granted, it's not my fault when people can't get along. I can't be in their home and say, stop that. You know, I, can't, I can't do that. Uh, but, and I, I can't, you can't, other people have to make their own decisions. But I wanted to see if there's something I missed, and I did. Those 
I looked at all of the records. The only two that had gotten a divorce in those 20 years, the only two couples, were the only two that I had allowed not to complete my five required premarital counseling sessions. So after that, there was no, if somebody said we can't do all five, I'm not gonna do the wedding. So I believe in it. And one of the things I force the couples to go through, and I do this with married couples that need counseling, is the love chapter. We go through this. And we go through, I have a, a front and back page. I'll clue you in right now. You, if you ever need this, you, and it happens to you, and I'm sharing it with you, you'll know, you'll know it's coming. You each one get a sheet, and it's got true and false. You can circle one. There's a hyphen in, in, in between. You can, or a, a backslash. You can circle true or false, and, and we go through the love chapter. Like, and, and it says, he or she... First it says, I am patient. And the next one, number two, he or she, meaning the other person, is patient. And you put true or false. And if you struggle with it, if I see them struggling, and I also tell them don't look at each other's paper, you can circle that little backslash and point an arrow, like mostly true, mostly false. Uh, so that's what we do. And if you don't know what the love chapter is, I'm going to show it to you now. It's coming up behind me. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. And you go through the whole thing. And what I encourage, so we go through this chart, and I explain to them, after they've done this, they have done this true and false. They haven't looked at each other's papers. Now, switch papers. <laughs> See where you agree and disagree. You'd be shocked at the couples that don't talk about these things and don't have clarity. And like, you think I'm impatient? You know, that kind of thing. That happens. You think I'm not? Anyway, uh, it happens all the time. So you should be able to put your name where it says love. And here's how it works. So let's just take the first one. Love is patient. So if on that piece of paper you were have, have to admit that I'm not always patient with my spouse or my intended spouse or my kids or my coworkers, what does that feel like to them? Here's what it feels like. So if you're one who's got a short fuse with other people, you're one that gets very irri irritable when other people make mistakes and you judge them and you don't let go, you're very impatient with other people. You know what it feels like? It feels like you don't love them. That's how it feels on the other end of that. If you are not patient with other people, it feels like you can't stand them. That's the opposite of love, you know feels more like hate. So you should ask yourself that question when you're trying to be a loving Christian, a Christian that represents Christianity because we're supposed to love God and love others. Do other people know that I love them? And if you have to say, I'm not sure. Say there's an issue. And if you're not patient... With people, there's, I guarantee you, they don't know you love them. You can go through the whole thing. Kind, you've got to be kind to people. I mean, sure, surely you're kind. Well, some people are mean. And guess what? Some of them might be right here in this room. There's a chance of it. Guess what? It might be you. It might be me. You ever had anybody think you're mean? 
you should ask yourself the question, why did I do something to make them think that? Love does not envy or boast. And that, that may not sound like a big deal to you because some of us like to brag. Bragging does go with arrogance. That's why that's the next word. And however you feel about how it looks, it definitely feels like you're loving yourself more than everybody else when you're a boaster. Just saying. It's the way it is. It's not arrogant, meaning you, you shouldn't act like you've always got everything figured out because you don't. Or rude. How can that be not like love? Okay, all right, so we'll, let's do that. Let's go ahead and talk about some things that I talk about in the privacy of a couple that we got to get down to the nitty-gritty and talk about things. It's, it's a weird thing that I didn't first become aware of this until I was a preacher in a church and all a bunch of men, deacons and elders and me, we all went to another church building because they just built it and they had only been in it like a year or two and everybody was talking about how great this building was and so we wanted, we were about to build a building so let's go look and see what they did and this is the way churches do things. Let's see what other churches do. Not a bad idea to see how others do it and we don't want to make the mistakes, you know, that others uh, might make so we want to learn from their mistakes, except we don't always do that. We don't, we'll just go into their buildings and go, man, I like what they did. We should do that. How about ask the question, are you glad you did that? We went in here and nobody asked that question, but somebody spoke out and said, I love that. I love the way they did this. And I don't even remember what it was, but one of the deacons was just so fascinated. We should do that. And the preacher goes, oh, don't do that. We regret it. That was a bad idea. Like, whoa. And that's when it occurred to me, we should find out if just because somebody did it doesn't mean it's good. And we live in a world now that when we do something, we think it's all right because we do it. <laughs> For instance, you have a principle, you're very principled on this principle, and you're not going to back down until somebody in your family deviates from that principle. And now, because they do it, it's okay. You've seen this, right? I thought... Ethics and morals were actually a thing. But if it's changing whichever way the wind blows, it's not a thing. <laughs> so what we do is we think because somebody else does it, it must be good. It must be the thing. So here's a trend. This has been a trend for, I guess, the last 20, 30 years, something like that. So if you're, I have no judgment on you. There's no couple in this room has shared with me this information. So don't feel judged unless you need to. I just don't, I'm not judging you because I don't know your story. But the trend is this. People like to say, you really aren't close to your spouse unless you share the bathroom together. That's the thing. 20, 30 years, that's the thing. You got to share the bathroom at the same time, no matter what you're doing, you do whatever in front of each other, no secrets. When I'm counseling a young couple that haven't made the mistakes of many of the rest of us, I counsel them to tell them, your bathroom time is your private time. Because <laughs> people like to complain. You'll hear it in, in small talk, conversation. You talk to your friends, and, yeah, there's no romance in our relationship anymore. And you'll discover there's reasons behind that. And I'm telling you that the things that you do in the bathroom should be kept private, because if they're not, it's very hard for you to pretend to be romantic after your nastiness has been exposed. 
So I tell young couples, there should not be any evidence that you were doing anything nasty in the bathroom. <laughs> Ever. No whiskers all over the sink. Nothing that's in the trash that's disturbing. Toilet should be flushed. There shouldn't be a remnant of anything that you were in there doing something. Clean up after yourself and don't expect the other person to do it. If you don't get that figured out, romance will diminish from your relationship. I guarantee it. Lock the door. And if you find a locked doorknob, you don't have to talk through the door. Because if somebody doesn't... Let me, we're visual. People like to say men are visual. Men and women both are visual. If they, somebody like goes to a locked door and they knock on the door and you don't just fling it open, hi, you're in a towel, like I'm just about to shower. If you don't do that, then they're going to imagine you're doing something else and you don't need that visual in their head. Okay, there's some free counseling right there. It will help you. <laughs> I know you don't typically hear that in a Sunday morning message, but there it is. So when it comes to rude... <laughs> We're not going to talk, I'll talk to you one-on-one -on -one if you want to get some real good advice about the whole overall rude thing, but being rude is a sign of disrespect. And in your home, if you, if you don't get it figured out, um, the other person's not going to feel loved. If you're going around being rude, so don't. And there's more. Um, it, love does not insist in its own way. Did you know that? <laughs> you know, every interpersonal relationship problem is caused by selfishness. So if you've got two people who are being selfless, you're going to get along a whole lot better. But a lot of times, I want my way, no matter what. And then there's friction. It's not irritable or resentful. We talked about that. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. We shouldn't delight in wrongdoing. We really shouldn't. And it speaks volumes to our character if we are delighting in others' wrongdoing. Rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, meaning you, you tolerate others. Um, not that you tolerate sin, but you're not judgmental. So you bear things. And you don't be one that's... The kind of people that always think everybody else is lying are usually not trustworthy. Are you going to get burnt when you start trusting more? Yeah, you're going to get burnt. People will betray your trust. And you got to deal with it. You can forgive, but it doesn't mean you always have to trust the same after that. Be careful. Hopes, endures... I love that last part, love never ends. Uh, we're not supposed to give up on love. I, I share the love chapter with you because of the verse that I just read to you, and I'm going to read it to you again in a moment. But I want to tell you, I want to remind you, because in order to love people the way we're supposed to love people, it requires sacrifice, and not all of us are willing to do that. So I want to remind you of a passage in Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What we're doing now, yes, it's worship. But if you really want God's pleasure in worship, you sacrifice all of you for His glory and His honor. 
That requires sacrifice to do that kind of thing, to think that way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I'm going to take you into another passage in Romans in just a minute, but this I've been doing this a long time, 35 plus years, and so I've had all kinds of experiences. I know I haven't had all of yours, but I can share some with you. This one was unique. In Houston, Texas, we had a visitor who had never been to this Bible study. There's probably more people in the room that's in here right now. This was a Bible study, and this lady came in very confidently, and she had an agenda, and she had done her homework quite a bit. And her agenda, and she had not found a church where she could be happy, um, and she came to ours and wanted to share with us. She'd been to church Sunday morning, came to Bible study, and she, wanted, she began down this process of telling us why no Christian should ever eat meat. All Christians should be vegetarians. That was her opinion. Not vegan, but vegetarian. And I was a young and naive young minister, so I said to her, and she, she laid it all out on the table, and everybody's looking at me like, what are you going to say? You're the preacher. So I said, well, I think we might find the answer in Romans chapter 14, and here it is. Verse 1, and I began to read. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Hard to argue. I mean, she had everything. There's whole books, by the way. There's whole books on how Christians only Christians should only eat vegetables, not eat and other things other than anything associated with animals. There's whole books out there. You should be vegan. You should be a vegetarian because that's the only way. Because it's part of the curse that you eat meat and all that kind of stuff. My Bible and your Bible says pretty clearly there in Romans chapter 14, verse 2, if you're ever dealing with somebody who's trying to tell you you can't be a Christian if you eat meat, you might want to take them to that verse. She looked like I had just slapped her in the face. Like, how dare you? It's in the Bible. Is it not in your Bible? And it was. It's in all, everybody's Bible. But notice what this says, because this doesn't just apply to meat eating and vegetable eating. This applies to all kinds of things. This applies to our opinions. This applies, that's what it's talking about, opinions that are not necessarily based in Scripture. And what if they are? Still, it's your opinion. We, we, if we are, as a church, if we're going to be the kind of church God wants us to be, we're going to have all kinds of people in here, have all kinds of opinions. There'll be people who are meat lovers and people that are vegans, vegetarians. There'll be Democrats and Republicans. There'll be mask wearers and not mask wearers, vaccinated and unvaccinated. There's going to be all different kinds of people. If we're doing what the church is supposed to be doing, we're supposed to be reaching lost souls and lost souls come from all kinds of categories in the world. Is that not right? And they'll be here and we're going to try to give them Jesus and, and we don't want to try, you know, a lot of people don't come. You might have a neighbor who's like, man, he's, he ought to be in church. And maybe you invite him. And he says, man, I tell you what, that lightning would strike me down if I walked in the doors of a church. Because people have this idea that they have to clean their act up before they get, come into a church building. No, you don't. We want you to come. We want you to come to know Jesus who will help you clean your act up. If you come to Jesus and you want to live for him, he will help you get through all the changes you need to make. 
We, we should not expect people to get their life all straightened out and then come to Jesus. How do you do that? I, can't, I couldn't do that. I have to have Jesus to help me get things straightened out. I, I couldn't have done it without him, and I'm still trying to get stuff straightened out. I'm never going to arrive. But he helps me. And that's what this is talking about. Verse 3, it continues. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Do you, do you get that? We are servants of Christ. You, you don't have a right to be judgmental of the servants of Christ. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And there's more. You can read the whole chapter, and you'll see that we are supposed to be gracious with one another. It's how we love each other. Yes, we all come here with flaws, all of us. And we all come here with different opinions. And that verse, I said I would read it again. The way Paul ends all of Ephesians is with this wonderful, beautiful verse. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. We've got to make sure that we don't let contamination come in to our lives, Christians, and how we express ourselves to others. People need to know that we love them. How would the conversation go if I were in your neighborhood and I were to talk to your neighbors? Hey, you know them? Hey, they attend church with me. Do you, do you know they love you? How would I know that? Or a coworker? How would I know that? Christians, they're supposed to know. Let's pray. God, help us because we need it. You have shown us so much grace and we don't deserve. You have loved us despite our flaws. And God, we know we're supposed to love others like that, but God, we, we struggle sometimes. We've got our own things going on and sometimes we, we just lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing. And we're sorry, Lord. But we know that your grace is enough. We know that you can give us peace through these storms we're going through right now. And that we also know the devil will distract us from doing what we're supposed to be doing. So forgive us when we're distracted and help us to represent you well. God, we want our neighbors, our coworkers, our children, and anyone we come in contact with on a regular basis to know that we're real, we're genuine. We thank you for inspiring Paul to write the way he wrote in this first of the prison epistles. We, we can see how personal he made it and how it just jumps off the pages at us, Lord, how much you love us, how personal you are making this with us. God, help us to demonstrate our active faith and how in our, all of our personal relationships. May you show others your love for them through us. In Jesus' name, amen.